Bonjour and bienvenue. Hello and welcome back to Meyer Fun Facts. I'm Steve Meyer, and today's podcast features the conclusion of my interview with Wendy Call, Chief Curator at the Peshigo Fire Museum. Quite frankly, who needs Google when you have Steve Meyer and Meyer Fun Facts? Before we get into more details about the Peshtigo Fire on October 8, 1871, I should make mention of one of my main resources for these two podcasts, aside from Wendy, that is. While there are numerous articles discussing different aspects of the fire, my main resource was a book published in 2002, written by Denise Gass, G-E-S-S, and William Lutz, titled Firestorm at Peshtigo. Pick it up wherever books are sold, or even better yet, check it out from your local library. Fundamentally, a great historical read. As a follow-up to some of the details in the last podcast, Maniac Pat asked about comparisons of the population of Peshtigo to other Wisconsin cities at the time, and a comparison for the area of destruction other than Rhode Island. In 1870, while Peshtigo had a guesstimated population of 1,700, the city of Green Bay had a population of 4,600, and Madison was at about 9,100. The 1.2 million acres of destruction from the firestorm corresponds to an area twice the size of Dane County, Wisconsin. Just a quick reminder that you too can send me your comments, questions, and topic suggestions by dropping a note to MeyerFacts at gmail.com. Now, let's take a brief look back at last week. Various terms have been used to describe the nightmare that was occurring that evening in Peshtigo and surrounding communities. Was it a fire tornado? Was it a firestorm? People sometimes use terms like fire whirl, fire devil, fire nato, or firestorm interchangeably. The terminology can be confusing and not even the experts always agree on the difference between these phenomena. Regardless, at its essence, a fire requires fuel to burn, air to supply oxygen, and a heat source to get the fuel to its ignition temperature. The logging and land clearing practices of the time period, along with the sawmills of the area, provided debris that served as fuel for the Peshtigo fire. It was, don't forget, a sawdust town, and the persistent smoky haze emanating from the countryside spoke of the practice of using fire to clear land. 
Once a fire starts, weather can influence how it will spread and if it will grow. The important weather factors are temperature, wind, and humidity. Warmer temperatures allow fuels to ignite quickly, and low humidity keeps fuel dry and easy to burn. The lack of snow that previous winter and the lack of precipitation that summer and fall made the debris a perfect dry fuel source. Wind brings oxygen to a fire and can also help it spread. That cold front coming out of the west brought more than abundant winds. To this mix, add in the physical principle of convection, that heated air is less tense and therefore rises. This updraft can result in vertical velocities of hundreds of miles per hour and correspondingly high-speed horizontal velocities of cool, heavy, oxygenated air being drawn from all directions toward the core of the fire. It was, so to speak, a perfect storm, only this time a perfect storm of fire. People didn't just die in Peshtigo. Some spontaneously combusted and were cremated by heat that reached over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. They succumbed instantly from breathing in poison, superheated air. Many that perished died before they were actually burned or not burned at all by the fire as a result of inhaling the superheated air, which seared their lungs, causing their chest to collapse. They died of smoke inhalation, were run over by panic livestock, or drowned in the river where they sought refuge. Others were crushed in collapsing buildings, impaled by flying debris, and pulverized by all kinds of things dropping out of the sky on top of them. Still others committed suicide rather than face death by fire. When we come back, my interview with Wendy resumes. Meyer Fun Facts would like to take a moment to give a quick shout out to Tiplock Home Services. Now that summer is fading away, it's never too early to start focusing on fall projects to get ready for winter. If those projects are just too much, make sure you get a hold of Tiplock to give you a hand. Call Dan or Brock at 608 575 7044. You can also check them out at tiplockhomeservices.com. Now, back to the podcast. How did the fire eventually burn out? Well, the fire, it was going in a northerly direction. And Marinette is about seven miles north of Peshtigo. And it's like, well, why didn't that burn? Apparently, and I just learned this last year also from someone who knows more than me. Um, there was a big, a large sand hill outside of Peshtigo. Wendy, never admit, never admit that anybody knows more than you do about the fire. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. I am the foremost authority. Right. <laughs> um, so there was a large sand hill outside of Marinette. And when the fire got to that sand hill, it divided. It kind of went along the harbor, the bay of Marinette, um, the harbor of Marinette. And then it went on the other side of Marinette. And then it rejoined up around Menominee or a little north of Menominee. And it continued going north. The path of the fire had been much wider, but it narrowed up. And then when it got up toward, between Cedar River, Escanaba, it hit sand dunes and it finally rained. So the fire was extinguished. What were the immediate ramifications? What, I mean, you had a lot of people who had died. Yes. A lot of people who I assumed had serious injuries. How were those things dealt with? Well, as I said earlier, there were no telegraph lines. The horses, they're all dead or gone. And somebody had to walk to Marinette to get help. So Isaac Stevenson and some of the other big names in Marinette, they sent wagons, they sent help to Peshtigo. And that's how help started coming in. But really, word of the fire didn't get out to the rest of the world. Even the rest of the world for weeks, and even the governor of Wisconsin for several days. Because the when the in the aftermath of the fire, the governor of Wisconsin was in Chicago looking at the damage there. The telegraph that Peshtigo had burned came in and his wife got the telegram and she saw it and they had trains that were being sent to Chicago and she kind of commandeered them and said, uh-uh, those trains are going to Peshtigo. And that's another way in which help got there. What was the impact on the people who survived? I mean, it, it, they've got some had lost family members. Their employment had literally been turned to ashes. Was it just, uh, you know, sometimes after natural disasters, you see people with this vacant look, not knowing what to do. Uh, I, I'm what? absolutely sure that a lot of people did have that vacant look. Um, there were many people who would never talk about the fire and about what happened. Others did share the story. Um, Father Pernan, he was one of the people who did share the story. And he actually, I believe he went to Canada for a while after the fire to kind of recuperate mentally. And then people urged him to write a book. And that's kind of our foremost book on the fires through Father Pernan. But a lot of people lost their, many people lost their lives, lost their limbs. There was one lady who was afraid to go into the water because swimming wasn't a natural thing then. She was afraid to go in the water. So she half laid in the water and half out. So half of her was burned and half wasn't. And 
they talked about after the fire, when people got out, you could hear her moaning and screaming and she eventually did pass away. Yeah, people died from their burns after the fact also. And I'm sure antibiotics, infections, they weren't as readily available. One of the houses in Marinette, well, several in the houses in Marinette were actually turned into makeshift hospitals. There was a guy by the name of Abraham Place, and he lived out in the country, and he was married to a Native American woman, which wasn't entirely socially acceptable. But his relatives had said, something bad's going to happen, plow your fields. So he, he and his sons plowed wide berths around their house, just, you know, for the fire break. And then that morning they came and they said her family, his wife's family came and they were throwing blankets on the wood, pumping water, getting the blankets wet. And his home was the only home in the area that had survived. And some people were trying to make it to that house and he, his house ended up becoming a makeshift hospital. Wow. There's stories all over. A lot of individual stories of heroic and yes. and of people who obviously cared about other members of the community who were hurting. Yes, absolutely. What was the impact on Pestigo? It long term. I'm yeah. sorry. I mean. The, the mill industry, the, the wood industry struggled after that. I mean, the forests are gone. But William Ogden, he did rebuild the sawmills, but not to the extent they had been previously. You know, if Peshigo hadn't burned, I, I'm sure the population would have been more than it is now. But some people stayed in the area. Other people left was there any religious overtones to the fire and its there, consequences there was and i'm going to answer that question with another story that's all right so, yeah um there was a boarding house in town and some of the people went to this boarding house thinking they'd be safe they weren't, and everyone in it died. But in 1995, they were redoing a parking lot in the general area that boarding house had been. And there was a gentleman in town, we call him our town historian, Cubby Cavillian. He asked if he could go digging, looking for artifacts. And he found some shards of pottery. Um, but what was really interested, interesting is he found a book a blackened book, it's opened to these pages. And that book, it, you can see the writing on it and you can tell that it's a Bible. In the Bible, it's open to Psalms 106 and 107, which deal with devastation and disaster and survival. My guess is someone was in that boarding house reading the book, hoping for salvation um, that just didn't come. But that summer, there had been a lot of news of the 
fires and the dry conditions and all these itinerant preachers came to the area and would be the end of the world is coming repent so that i'm sure was in their mind all in all a pretty remarkable i want to say story but it's history it's, it's history yeah very remarkable and wendy really oh go ahead become history because during uh, while leading up to world war ii they studied this fire and they used you know it was kind of the perfect storm and it was called the peshtigo paradigm and they bombed dresden the allied forces bombed dresden using information that they had put together from the peshtigo fire that's remarkable that is absolutely remarkable and it is studied by firefighters. That's when kind of forest fire prevention started. Um, so there were longer terms, term effects to the fire. Fascinating. Wendy, thanks so much uh, for your time and your fascinating recapitulation of history. It's, uh, it's a story that should be better known. And what about the Peshtigo Fire Museum? Where is it? How can listeners support its efforts? The Peshtigo Fire Museum is in Peshtigo, Wisconsin. We are in the first church that was built after the fire. Um, actually, the original church burnt down in 1927. The original Catholic church burnt down and they bought the Congregational Church on the other side of the river, which had been built the year after the fire. They moved it to the site, and that's where the museum is located. We are open every year from the Friday before Memorial Day until October 8th, which is the anniversary of the fire. And every year at around 8 o'clock, we ring the bells on the church to kind of in memorial and memory memory of the people that were lost and survived so we are open 10 to 4 every day even weekends and holidays and we have binders full of stories and artifacts i'll be honest we don't have tons of artifacts because the city burned there was nothing left um, most of the stuff in the museum is time period pieces but we do have artifacts that did survive the fire that are very interesting. Do you still have those coffee cups that memorialize the date, the Peshtigo fire, October 8th, 1871? Uh, we are out of the coffee cups right now, but I just ordered more today. Okay. <laughs> I bought one for everyone in my family as Christmas gifts one year. Yeah. How long ago? We might have a new variety now. I'm sure you do. <laughs> it was like 2007 or six. I did that. Yeah, we have new ones now. They're much cooler. <laughs> okay. So you'll have to come get one next time you're in town. I will. I'll make sure I stop. Wendy, thanks again. 
it's been really informative and I appreciate it. And I know the listeners will as well. Yeah. Thank you. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to understand or realize just how terrible and how bad the firestorm's aftermath was. There were literally hundreds of dead bodies lying around that have been partially burned or simply floating in the Peshtigo River. Teams of survivors who were physically able set out to take care of the dead and give them a proper burial. A mass grave had been built for the unidentified bodies. In addition to those killed directly by the fire, there were many people who survived that night, but then died in the next day or two, sometimes from starvation or dehydration. Contrast this tragedy with what occurred in Lahaina. Lahaina was terrible. 97 people have been confirmed killed in that wildfire. But the reality is that Lahaina was a drop in the bucket compared to what occurred in Peshtigo in October of 1871. At the time of the fire, the population of Peshtigo had been increasing at the rate of 50 to 100 people per week, one of the fastest growing communities in the state. Yes, Peshtigo rebuilt, but it would never be the same. At its peak, it was Wisconsin's 10th largest city. Now, its population today barely tops 3,000. During Wendy's interview, she used the term Peshtigo paradigm relative to the Allies' firebombing of Dresden during World War II. Peshtigo paradigm is the right combination of wind, topography, and ignition sources that are needed to create a firestorm. But it wasn't limited to Dresden. A good 18 months beforehand, the Allies used the Peshtigo paradigm to commence a firebombing of the city of Hamburg on July 24, 1943. The geophysical effects were frighteningly similar to Peshtigo, and approximately 45,000 people were killed. It was called Operation Gomorrah. Yes, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the name was deliberately chosen as it referenced the biblical reign of ruin and fire coming from above. All told, the Peshtigo paradigm formed the basis for three of the major fire bombings by the Allies during World War II. Hamburg in 1943, Dresden in February of 1945, and Tokyo in March of 1945. The number of lives lost in those three fire bombings far exceeded, if not doubled, the loss of life that occurred 
when the atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. When we come back, we'll wrap things up, including, believe it or not, some Meyer fun facts. Although Isaac Stevenson suffered heavy losses from the fire, he recouped. He was one of the wealthiest lumbermen in the Great Lakes area, with real estate holdings throughout the Great Lakes, including Milwaukee and Chicago. He also owned vast acreages of pine lands in northern Wisconsin, which were yet to be harvested. He became active in politics and served as U.S. Senator from Wisconsin but not without significant controversy, including accusations of fraud of which he was cleared. His partner, William Ogden, came to Peshigo to help rebuild the town. However, he focused almost exclusively on completing the rail line north to Escanaba and revitalizing the spur of the rail line to Peshigo Harbor and the sawmill located there. Despite professed words to the contrary, the large woodenware factory was never rebuilt and numerous businesses in Peshigo never reopened. He, like Stevenson, financially recovered from the fire. No podcast would be complete without some litany of Meyer fun facts in the story. During my youth, when I wasn't swimming in Lake Michigan, I would swim periodically in the Peshigo River, near the location of the former bridge mentioned in the podcast. Not once did I ever reflect or think about the people who sought refuge and safety in the river on that evening of October 8, 1871. And as to the sand dunes south of Marinette that acted as a barrier which split the fire sparing the city, it became a veritable playground for those who wanted to spend their time exploring. Eventually it was used as a testing ground for Ansel Chemical Company, which specialized in the production of fire suppression chemicals. A significant development has been the recent discovery of chemicals known by the acronym PFAS, PFAS in the soil, groundwater, and surface water in the area. Discharges of PFAS to the environment occurred as a result of training, testing, research, and development of a type of PFAS-containing firefighting foam. Outdoor training with this foam occurred from the 60s until 2017. Fish and deer consumption advisories have been issued for the area, as well as restrictions on using private wells and open stream water. It is an extremely important issue that warrants our future attention. Part of the process of reconstruction included the rebuilding of Father Pernan's church, Our Lady of Lourdes. 
It still stands today on Main Street in Marinette as part of the formerly named Catholic Central High School. It's sanctuary serving as a chapel and the remainder of the building as a rehearsal hall for the high school band. On that note, this concludes the final episode of The Peshtigo Fire. We'll see you in two weeks, October 11th, for our next podcast. Until then, take care. <laughs>